Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast. How are you doing? Today I'm in conversation with Dr. James Burrell. James Burrell at James underscore Burrell on Twitter and that's B-O-R-R-E-L-L is a conservationist, explorer, scientist and communicator. James describes himself as a conservation biologist who has been involved in expeditions and fieldwork around the world. His main interests are the impacts of habitat fragmentation, fragmentation and of climate change on species. For me, James is best known for his uncompromising optimism and his challenging attitudes towards con- conservation orthodoxies and practices. And you can read many of his opinions on conservation on the blog on his website, www.jamesburrell.com. And I've put a link to his brilliant TED talk on optimism in conservation in the show notes. During the course of this episode, we cover why optimism plays such an important role in his conservation outlook, and why James thinks we perhaps shouldn't be spending so much time and money trying to protect wildlife in the UK. He also reminisces about his early expeditions to Madagascar, and talks about the important role that expeditions, exploring, and challenging your own limits and comfort zone can play in forming yourself as a conservationist. And he explains why he thinks we need more healthy disagreement in conservation in order to make environmental progress. James is amazing. He's got some incredible stories to tell about encounters with with wildlife, discovering new species, and he's probably one of the most well-rounded guests I've had the pleasure to speak to on the podcast. And remember that you can subscribe to the Wild Voices Project podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at Wild Voices Proj, and you can find all the episodes on the website as well, www.wildvoicesproject.org. And the Wild Voices Project podcast is part of a global project called Wild Voices Media, which bridges emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals. And you can find out more about this global project at wild-voices.org. Right. I think that's about enough from me this time, so let's dive straight in to this really fascinating episode. Taking the time to talk to me, I really appreciate it. Welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Um, James, it was a little bit difficult to know where to start with questions for you, just because you're uh, so well-rounded and do so much stuff. Um, And my usual question of how do you build wildlife into your day or week seemed a little bit redundant. So I was gonna, (laughs) I was gonna ask instead. what wildlife have you had in your day or week? Well, I don't know. Actually, I think you might be right because you you can seem like you work on wildlife all the time, but actually, mm. you know, I've just been playing with spreadsheets and code all day. So, well, but, but what wildlife have I had in my day? I'm really lucky to work at the Royal Botanic Gardens queue. So on a day like this, that's pretty much the coolest place in the UK, I think, to be working. Well, at least in any major town or city, um, because 
50 meters from where I work is a, a couple of glass houses. One has montane plants, one has tropical plants. And then, you know, it's spring. So we've got all kinds of flowers coming up, trees in bloom. So um, I'm, I'm really lucky in that respect. Cool. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So on a beautiful day like this, which is one of the, well, yesterday was the warmest April day in about 70 years. And today must be pretty close to it as well. Um, yeah, that must be a pretty nice place to be based. I want to come back to what you're doing at Q at the moment. Um, but uh, I want to ask um, where your passion or interest for the natural world, wildlife, the environment came from originally and whether that was something that started in childhood or whether it came later. Yeah, I mean, absolutely in childhood. I think every child thinks the natural world is cool and wants to jump in mud and see what's in ponds and rivers. I think it's just that most people get overtaken with other priorities. Um, so I think if you can retain a bit of that childhood wonder and uh, I guess I guess wildlife and conservation is a is a sort of career where you can just keep trying to learn. I think that's why science is great. So yes, I was interested for a long time, but how to actually turn that into something you do, uh, you know, a profession or a vocation. Um, my first trip was to Madagascar. My first big sort of fieldwork expedition was to Madagascar. And I've, I've said before, <laughs> everyone knows this story, but I, I only really got involved with that because I thought it would impress girls. And, you know, <laughs> as a 16-year-old, as a forget wildlife. Girls were my priority. Um, but sort of getting outside Europe, um, seeing the wider world for the first time and the immense kindness of people, but at the same time, the enormous problems made me really think that that was something that I'd like to spend my life trying to chip away at, trying to make a tiny positive difference for. And um, I, I'd, of course, really recommend Madagascar to anyone, but I'd say the most important thing is to get outside your comfort zone. You know, that when I arrived, yeah. uh, within a few days, I got ill. It was pouring with rain in the rainforest. I was having a really rotten time. Um, and, you know, the fact that you're, you're there for, for a long time, getting home is difficult, makes you, makes you deal with it. And then you really immerse yourself in, you know, an amazing environment. And, and that's, that was the motivation to, to stay working and involved with wildlife and conservation. So was that first trip, were you saying that that was when you were... Um... You were around 16? Uh, I was 17 when I went on that trip. But got, I got involved at 16. It was um, with a charity called the British Exploring Society. Really, really old charity based at the Royal Geographical Society in London. And they've, they've sort of been around before the sort of gap year overseas wildlife volunteering thing uh, sort of has become really popular. They, they've been around about 80, 85 years. And they were founded to send people on expeditions that they would find difficult to turn them into useful young members of society and they did that by not just going and walking across hills with big packs and you know hardship for the sake of it mm -hmm. they did it by doing science and i think you know from the expeditions i've been involved in if i was going just to see a place or an experience numerous occasions whether i'd have given up before i got to where i was meant to go but if you're going with a purpose that's bigger than you you know you need to collect samples you need to try and find a certain species or or something like that then i think that's the motivation that 
that sort of keeps you going when everything's getting a bit rough. And uh, and so that's why I think expeditions as young people with a with a strong scientific research basis are, are really important. I owe what I'm doing to it, so that's why I advocate it so strongly. But obviously before that, I just sort of fell into it, and so it really was the experience that that changed everything. Mm, okay, that's really interesting. You've already touched on touched on a number of things that I wanted to wanted to ask you about. Do you have any particularly special or um, uh, any memories that uh, kind of <laughs> seared onto your brain of that um, of that first trip that you took? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's there's lots of things. I remember um, we we flew out there, long journey stayed the night in the capital and we got these little mini buses and we went out and I remember sort of piling all this stuff off these mini buses in a great big pile you know you know those 80 litre rucksacks you've had in the yeah. Duke of Award or something like that I remember piling them all up on a big tarpaulin we all had sort of new shiny Gore-Tex jackets and walking boots and poles and gaiters and all these kind of things and it was just the most enormous crowd of people from this village that just never seen anything like it and it was and and I remember it was, my, it was my first experience of being really out of my comfort zone. And I, I sort of thought, well, these, these people don't seem particularly friendly. And um, and I was, of course, absolutely, totally wrong. Within 24 hours, we had, you know, a bunch of guides and assistants and, and rangers and everything from this village. And we were living together in the rainforest. You know, it was just the most marvellous environment. I remember one thing that really struck me was you know as i said after a couple of days right at the beginning i got ill i felt very useless you know standard tropical type stuff mm -hmm. um, yeah. everyone else was out working you know and i thought well i came out here to be useful and here i am sitting at camp and a few moments later uh, a bunch of injury lemurs came flying through the canopy and one of the guides sort of beckoned and and said do we want to follow them should we go and have a look and, and try and get a look at them and I followed this guy off into the forest and we climbed up and up and up. And eventually we came to this spot. We lost the lemurs, but an enormous tree had fallen down um, in a cyclone a few months earlier. And it was sort of on this hillside and it fallen a great big gash in the canopy. And you could climb up onto the trunk and you could look out and you could see this entire valley covered, you know, in tropical rainforest. And it was absolutely spectacular. But the, the thing that really stuck with me was you turned around and look the other way, you know, you look north instead of south, you could see for three or four times the distance and there was nothing but just barren grassland. Mm -hmm. So the bit of forest we were working in was just a, a tiny island. It was one of the only bits that was left. And it's not very often in, you know, that you can, at least on the ground, get that enormous sense of perspective. Um, and that really was the perspective that sort of inspired us that what we were doing was, was hopefully useful. So you've you've touched on it there slightly, and I've seen you or heard you say in some of your talks that Madagascar is a very special place to you. What is it, in your words, that is so special about Madagascar? I think um, I think Madagascar is a microcosm for everything else we're trying to do. So it's got a sort of burgeoning population that's very poor, um, but very lovely, and it's got an extraordinary diversity of plants, amphibians, reptiles, and mammals. And, you know, it's got 
huge issues aren't talked about so much. So the big scary thing in Madagascar is not just habitat fragmentation, but it's it's the erosion that happens when you lose your forests. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and erosion isn't sexy. So Madagascar's kind of got all the problems of the rest of the world rolled into one nice, neat package that happens to be one country. Um, and so if we can if we can turn the tide and 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 start to make progress in Madagascar, then I think it's possible everywhere else. But if we can't fix Madagascar, then you know, I think we're also struggling everywhere else. So I think it's just a little pint-sized package that really is an analogy for problems we've got everywhere else. Um, so I think if you wanted to just focus your career on one country, Madagascar would be a great one to do it on. And I think you, I'd go even further and say some people have said, you know, Madagascar is a lost cause because the deforestation is so severe, the diversity is so staggering that we're surely just going to lose it. Um, and I, again, I think if you give up on Madagascar, you might as well give up on everything else as well. So I think Madagascar is a little, a little pint-sized version of all our conservation problems rolled into one. That's that's really interesting, and I watched with great interest the um, the talk that you gave to correct me if I'm wrong to the Explore conference, which yeah. which went on to talk in in detail about the the trip that you've been on much more recently than that first ever trip to look at the edge effects of forests and how that impacts on forest species. I was wondering if, um, without asking you to recite your whole 17 minute talk again. Um, whether or not you'd mind just sketching out a little bit of the detail around what you found out about um, forest edge effects on species yeah. in Madagascar, and also I think I think that was the trip where you you and your team discovered some species that may be new to science. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, they 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 are now. So um, one of the small brown frogs um, has been designated a um, a new species. And it's named Angano after after the name of the expedition. So that's really cool. And all credit to, to one of my colleagues, Mark Scherz, um, for doing that. He's done a fantastic job. Absolutely insane frog knowledge, insane frog guy altogether. Um, the, the real motivation for the the project, which was really nicely supported by um, you know several grants from different organisations in the UK, um, the real motivation was. Lots of, I'm sure lots of people listening would have heard of habitat fragmentation when, when a big bit of forest gets carved up into smaller pieces. And fragmentation can be really bad because it isolates different populations. When populations are smaller, they become more vulnerable. Um, there's lack of connectivity and gene flow. There's all these problems. But there's another effect of fragmentation that's much less talked about. And it might be a problem and it might not be. So we deserve, you know, we owe it to ourselves to try and find out. And that's when you when you cut a forest up into pieces, the proportion of edge, the edge of the forest becomes much more common and deep, dark interior places become much less common. So if you think about a, a UK woodland, if you stand on the edge next to a field, it's it's hotter, it's drier, you know, there's more sun, there's more wind, there's more human disturbance. Whereas if you stand, you know, 200 meters from an edge, it's darker and cooler and more humid. And so even if we if we look at satellite and work out how much forest is left in Madagascar, we'll get a certain number. But if we think about what Madagascar was probably like a few hundred or thousand years ago, there would have been a lot less of these edges. You know, the forest would have been a lot more continuous. And so trying to understand how these edges affect which species can, can persist is really important. 
and particularly in things like a small frog. If you're a really small frog that weighs five grams, if it gets just a little bit hotter or a little bit sunnier, that's you're, you really might struggle with that. And so you might be an interior preferring species. So, so what we did is we led an expedition and we cut transects in from these big edges. Um, and it's absolutely staggering when you when you walk for sort of five hours across grassland and then suddenly you just meet this wall of forest. And that and that's where deforestation has got up to. And you just hit this wall and we cut transects into it and we recorded amphibians and reptiles. And what we were interested in to see is whether some are only found on the edges, some are only found in the interior, you know, and whether some are just generalist and they can get on with it. And we're, we're still working on it. Science takes a long time. And as all scientists say, I'd love to go back and get a little bit more data. But from what we could tell, it seems like something like the first 30 to 40 meters is different. And and then the sort of interior forest starts. And that's really exciting because I think there's a statistic that something like 80 percent of forest in Madagascar is within a kilometer of an edge. And that just tells you quite how fragmented it is. And so if we can find a, a bit of good news that edges aren't influencing um, the, the diversity of the forest too much, then that's really exciting. But of course, it may be different in lemurs, it may be different in birds, it may be different in insects, it may be different in plants. So there's a huge amount still to do, but it's an exciting little area to research. Yeah, I was just about to, um, I was just about to say that um, presumably those effects may translate across to um, other species receptors get me with my um science terminology um in not just not just other parts of madagascar but there are also obviously forests across the world in places like indonesia that i'm familiar with that um absolutely that that suffer from fragmentation as well and this might begin to inform what we think about the effects of forest fragmentation in those countries too In, in fact sometimes it goes both ways i mean some of the evidence is that actually for primates um sometimes they prefer to spend more time on the edge of the forest because where you have a forest edge you get more sunlight so fruiting trees often produce more fruit and that's appealing to things like lemurs so it could go both ways if for different species so in many ways it's an exercise in trying to prioritize what kinds of animals are vulnerable to this sort of process which is one of the reasons we're most interested in sort of small weak frogs um so, but you're absolutely right. And, and whether it translates to South America, to Southeast Asia, to Central Africa, big questions. And um, so frogs is interesting because, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that frogs are, or amphibians are particularly sensitive to these localized climatic changes, which brings me on to another question that I wanted to ask, which is that the, um, the golden toad or frog, anyway, you'll correct me, the golden toad, I think, was one of the first species in uh, Colombia, is it Costa Rica, that yeah. that scientists think may have gone extinct because of climate change, although I know that's contested by scientists and they think there may have been other factors at play. Um, I know that some of your research has been on the potential impacts that climate change will have on biodiversity. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about what the ways in which ecosystems may change over the coming the coming century, which I know that you said is the most important century for wildlife and for the planet's ecosystems in thousands, if not millions of years. (laughs) Ever, maybe barring a meteor impact, probably ever. Um, Yes, so 
climate change. I mean, it's difficult to say something new that hasn't already been said, but I guess the way I think about climate change is it sucks, but if nothing else was going on, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Um, so one of the reasons that it's hard to pin extinctions or declines down to any one thing is because it's almost never one thing that really you know causes a problem so if we didn't have any fragmentation if we didn't have pollution if we didn't have over exploitation and we just had climate change then populations would be much larger they'd be more diverse and probably in a better position to adapt to changes there certainly would be problems and there'd probably be species that, that slip to extinction because of changing environments but the climate change on its own isn't you know isn't the end of the world nevertheless we should tackle it as vigorously as we can it's it's more the fact that we have climate change at the same time that we have all of these other pressures and stresses and it's all of these things combined that i think makes the recipe for a lot of the biodiversity loss that we're seeing right so it's the fact so when we see those headlines that say things like by the end of the century one in six species could go extinct because of climate change we've got to put that in the context of all the other pressures that are also acting on the those species as well yeah and i mean i mean that that's the problem because your your listening's excluded but most people are are interested but not particularly interested and i can't publish a headline that gets in the news that says lots of species are going to go extinct because we're polluting we've got climate change we've got habitat fragmentation and we've got over exploitation you know almost everything you see or read has to be boiled down to a particular aspect and if i study climate change in a certain species for example and i find that that species is declining i'm going to be most interested in what aspect I can attribute to climate change, which is what I study, which is which is fine. That's how we all work. Um, but it's it's all of these things combined that's you know if we're trying to look at a big picture. Mm, okay, I wanted to ask another about another element of your your research. So um, your PhD, which I think you completed in 2016, was in molecular ecology. I wondered if you could just begin by explaining exactly what that actually is. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, depending on who I'm talking to, depends on what I say I do. You know, <laughs> you can just say you're everything from a scientist or a geneticist or a botanist or a conservationist. You know, it, it really depends on the day of the week. Um, molecular ecology sounds nerdy and hard, but it's actually, it's actually really, really cool. And in a nutshell, I guess the type of thing you can use it for is, let's say you've got a... You've got a, a species of plant that's become quite rare and you'd like to conserve it. Now, the sort of stage one of conservation is find out where these things are, um, find out if they're declining or if they're stable, if you can propagate them and grow a few more and release them into the environment, these kind of things. And that's, you know, perhaps you make a protected area for this particular plant or you'll remove a grazer all the kind of standard conservation tools. And that's definitely the first step because they're cheap, they're low tech, they're smart, and they're effective. But where molecular ecology can come in is, or, or conservation genetics, that's trying to understand the diversity of the populations that are left. So for example, 
you might be able to create a sort of ex situ population. You might, like someone like Hugh, might be able to collect a few of these plants and grow them in a glasshouse as an insurance policy. Which ones do you collect? Which populations do you go to? And if you, for example, um, sequenced or genotyped some plants from all of the populations, you could pick a, a set of populations that captured all of the diversity. To, to give an analogy in, in humans, if we wanted to, to have an insurance population of humans that captured all of our genetic diversity, we'd want to take some people from, from Europe, some people from different parts of Africa, some people from Southeast Asia, and that would capture all of the diversity of humanity, or at least the genetic diversity. And in conservation, often you want to try and achieve that same thing. You can even potentially in the future take it one step further. We can understand, um, for example, how likely it is for organisms to be able to adapt and how much standing genetic diversity is there. If there's a lot of diversity, then there's a, potentially a good chance they'll be able to adapt. Molecular ecology has told us things like, for example, the cheetah. The cheetah has extremely low genetic diversity, and we think that's because it went through a bottleneck several thousand years ago, a bottleneck when the population becomes really, really, really small, even smaller than it is now, and, and then expands again. And, and so it, it, that can give us a clue as to why, for example, um, trying to breed cheetahs is really, really difficult, and why they often have um, health issues, because they have very low genetic diversity. So it's an extra kind of nerdy conservation tool that I often think should come after the more sort of normal, the more conventional conservation. That's really interesting. And you've mentioned a couple of potential applications of it there, but I imagine that it has has a lot of um, a lot of potential applications. Um, you referred briefly to Q and the way that Q might use molecular ecology. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what it is that you're currently doing with Q at the moment. So at the moment, I, um, I've been at Q about six months. I'm working on a really weird plant called NSET, and it's also called false banana. And it's related to the bananas. Um, it's, a, it's a food plant, but the bananas it produces are, are rubbish. They're about two or three inches long. They are mostly full with seeds the size of, size of marbles, and they've got no nice flesh. So they're rubbish as bananas. But in one particular part of Ethiopia, southwest Ethiopia, there's about 20 million people that rely on NSET as their staple food. And what they do is they, they mash up this enormous, it's, it's trunk, if you like, but it's actually not a, it's not a tree, so it's actually a pseudostem. They mash up its pseudostem, which is full of starch, and they mash up its corn. And that's an un underground, kind of like a root that looks like a giant celeriac. Um, and they mash it up and they make food called kocho or bulla or amicho. And so it's this incredibly important food source um, for 20 million people that is almost unknown outside of Ethiopia. No one else outside of Ethiopia has domesticated it or grows it. So why as a, as a conservationist am I interested in a crop? Well, this crop is absolutely incredible um, in terms of food security. You can plant it at any time of year. You can harvest it at any time of year. It grows for five, six, seven, eight years, keeps getting bigger. Um, it stores well in the ground. It's moderately drought resistant. It's fairly disease resistant. And it pr produces an e enormous amount of food per hectare. And it supports one of the highest population densities anywhere in Africa. 
And so if people eat this food and, and, and we can safeguard this, this plant, then that means less pressure on things like forests. And so solving some of our food security issues is actually a really effective way of getting at conservation. Um, but I, I, I mean, I mainly got involved because it's a really nice conservation genetics or, or, or molecular ecology question. So one of the things that's really weird about NSET is there's potentially more than 600 different varieties. What I mean by varieties, if you imagine apples in the UK, we have Cox, Gala, Braeburn, Pink Lady, all these different kinds of apples. And you could probably you could probably name five or six. You could recognize different ones in a shop. But if you go to a farm in Ethiopia, they'll look at these plants, which to you and me look absolutely identical. And they'll list at least 20 different types that have these subtle differences. And often really as a, as a foreigner, you can't really tell them. But because these farmers work with these every day, all their lives, they can detect all kinds of subtle differences. And we're really trying to understand whether this plant is this diverse, um, how it works, and what sort of environmental conditions it needs. Because there's been almost no research on this plant at all. And so it's a really, really important for Ethiopia. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people have seen the headlines uh, about, you know, massive food shortages in countries like Ethiopia and other African countries in the past. And going into the going into the future, we've already talked about climate change and growing populations as well. I believe that, you know, Africa is one of the parts of the world where we're expecting to see the largest amounts of or largest proportions of that population growth. So coming up with solutions like you've mentioned to address food shortages or minimize the amount of land that's required to feed that growing population in ways that are resistant to potential changes in climate is absolutely vital to the future of wildlife and biodiversity conservation yeah. as well the the thing i'd say about ethiopia is it's nothing like any of the headlines. It's nothing It's nothing like what you would expect. Mm. And in fact, most people will be familiar with Ethiopia from famines around 30 years ago. And actually, Ethiopia is an enormous country. And I haven't been to the north or, or the east where, you know, the most severe famine was. And in fact, in the southwest, which is all predominantly highland, predominantly insect growing, um, they say there was no famine 30 years ago. And what they often tell me in Ethiopia is that Ethiopia had enough food to feed itself um, during that famous famine, but simply didn't have the infrastructure to move it to where it was needed. So, I mean, that's the great thing about, you know, working in wonderful, interesting countries is you just learn so much that you, that you had no idea of. Yeah, so I want to... Yeah. I wanted to shift gears slightly and talk a little bit more about your um, about your travel. And besides Madagascar, you've been to so many incredible places around the world. And I feel like um, <laughs> I feel like just asking the question, "Tell me about the most amazing experience you've had," would be unfair by, by dint <laughs> of being so unspecific and you having so many different things to choose from. So I was wondering if I could try and be a little bit more specific and ask um, about. And I, I'm sure having listened to your TEDx talks and your other your other talks and read so many of your blogs that you'll have stories that can hopefully answer these. I was wondering if you could tell me about 
um, and take your time to think of these if you want. A time when you were emotionally moved by an encounter with wildlife, had your breath taken away by a place, and were made to feel hopeful by an encounter with a person. <laughs> okay, well, what was what was the first one? So Remind the first me. One. Um, an emotional encounter with wildlife. Feel free to adapt them as you want as well. An emotional encounter with wildlife. Well, I guess most of the time I'm trying to remain totally detached and scientific, <laughs> but of course you know, we fail miserably. I think the things I enjoy most are, I like the first thing in the morning, you know, when you're camping out in the bush or you're in the rainforest, first thing in the morning, you know, um, walking around camp, you know, the birds and the sounds, that, that for me is just the most special time, provided it's not a torrential downpour in some tropical forest, mm -hmm. that's rubbish. Um, so I think I think that's that's when it comes to it. I think sometimes when you see a species, you know, I've I've been lucky enough to see a handful of really critically endangered animals. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw Ethiopian wolf in in the Bali Mountains in in Ethiopia, and there's about 400 of those. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. To boast. I managed to see 17 in three days. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, that's a fair percentage of the entire population. And I think that's the kind of uh, cold statistic that actually gets me emotionally, is when you see an animal and you're like, hey, you know, that's 1% of all of the ones that are left. Um, I think that's, that's what gets me, probably because I'm, I'm a bit sciencey. That's the kind of thing that really gets me. Um, a place that took my breath away, uh, I would have to say, and I didn't even see much wildlife there, but there's a, a really remote, absolutely enormous reserve in the far north of Mozambique called Nyasa. And to give a statistic, I think it's um, twice the size of Kruger, which is incidentally enormous. And we drove for about two days each way on terrible roads to get to it. It's been decimated by um, poaching. The, there's a lot of wildlife there, but it's extremely scared and you pretty much don't see anything. But uh, there's, these, there's these really weird sort of geological formations in, in northern Mozambique and southern Tanzania. And I wish I was a geologist and I wish I understood them, but they're I think they're called uh, they're called copies or, or whalebacks, and they're these enormous sort of 50, 100 meter high sort of granite outcrops, often with sort of bald tops. And we managed to sort of get our vehicle up to the top of one, and we intended to sort of visit for a day and see what Nyasa was like. And we ended up just camping there, looking at the view for three, and it was absolutely vast and you could just see these other little mountains sticking out of this great big savannah canopy and to know that out there are lions are elephants are wild dogs leopards a huge diversity of birds and to know that people are working so hard to try and protect this enormous reserve that no one's ever heard of um and struggling and sometimes failing um that that landscape northern mozambique i would say is one of the most remarkable i've ever seen uh, what was the third one the third one was a time when an encounter with a person or a group of people made you feel hopeful 
um i think i think there's a there's there's two i'd say and i think they have an important moral one of the ones that really stuck with me was um i was very privileged to have the opportunity to work in in dofar in southern oman oman's in the middle east and it's home to the arabian leopard and i think there's there's eight or nine subspecies of leopard and the arabian leopard is one of the rarest there's thought to be about 200 left. And we were there camera trapping as well as doing some work on dragonflies and a load of other cool things. And one of the threats to the Arabian leopard is people shooting them or poisoning them. And you can really understand why, because they are predators. And people there have camels, um, they have cattle, they have goats. And although some really good science has shown that leopards very rarely predate on those animals. Um, in, in Oman, they're mostly hunting things like hyrax. Um, people are nevertheless not particularly fond of them. And one day we were camping in the base of this, this wadi, this dry river valley, sitting around the fire. And hospitality in Oman to guests and strangers is one of the most important parts of the culture. And this shepherd man um, came out of the hillside with an enormous rifle over his shoulder. And he sat down and we, we immediately offered him tea and coffee and, and welcomed him. And he'd come down with his rifle because he was worried about us. He thought the leopard was dangerous. Um, he thought it was a bit risky for us to be here. And he thought he'd come down so that if there are any problems, he could shoot it to protect us. Now, if you just read things in the news about poachers and hunters, it's very easy just to think all these people are terrible, terrible people. But in almost all cases, they're actually just ordinary people in, in an unusual situation. And it's very easy to want to say to this guy, no, 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 you shouldn't shoot them. You're, you're completely wrong. But if we think about it from his perspective, the reason we were in that valley is probably because it's got one of the highest densities of leopards left anywhere in Oman. He's seen them quite frequently. And he didn't admit it quite in as many words, but he's shot several as well. But again, we couldn't hate him for it. He was a really, really nice, well-educated guy. And from his perspective, leopards were fairly common because he saw them regularly. It wasn't for him to have this global perspective that so many of us now have because we work in conservation. And so, you know, we explained why we were there, what we were doing. I, I'm not sure we completely changed his mind. Um, but we both were enabled to see both perspectives. And I think being able to see each other's perspectives is the most important thing. And I've since had similar experience with someone that had shot Jaguar in South America, um, people that shot primates for bushmeat. And I think it's really important as conservationists to be able to see their perspective and not just tar everyone that shoots a wild animal as a poacher. Um, because they're really not. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think we'll get for an episode of this podcast at the moment without referring to my to my experience living in Indonesia. But I'm going to do it again, which is no, to, say that, to say that all the um, you know I worked with the team of well, there, there were a team of Western people out there, but there was also a team of I don't know, fifteen, twenty, maybe getting up to thirty Indonesian guys who worked with us, helping us to track the primates and do the damming in the forest and monitor for 
illegal um, hunting of birds. And some of those guys who worked with conserving the forest were former miners because there was no other work at that time. There was no alternative but to do mining, which was extremely harmful to the forest. And it wasn't until conservation came along as an option that they switched out of... Um, switched out of mining and got involved in conservation work. So I completely yeah, agree that sometimes the best allies are the people who don't start out in that place. Um, absolutely. And I can really relate to, I really relate to the, um, I've forgotten the species already, but the species where you said you saw, oh, the Ethiopian wolf, um, where you saw a large percentage of the extant population. Um, again, in Indonesia, I, um, uh, there's a bird called the Storms Stork, of which I think there are about 500 left in the world, and I was on a boat trip uh, through uh, up a river, and I think on that trip we saw two very distantly in the evenings, um, and then one time when I was at the top of the tower uh, next to our base camp, um, I was watching some hornbills through my binoculars, and I took my binoculars down for a moment, and this huge bird came and almost landed on the top of the tower, realised that there was a person up there and quickly <laughs> turned around. Um, and I realised that it was a storm stalk. Wow. Um, so not yeah. only have I been a few feet away from one of them, but I've also seen three of the remaining 500 or so, which yeah. is half a percentage of the remaining world population, which yeah. makes me feel the same way as you do, which is, you know, it's incredible to think that there are only that many left. And I've seen such a proportion of them which is both you know humbling yeah. and sad at the same time um great well you've you've very adeptly answered my three questions about um experiences that you've had <laughs> i wanted to stick on field work for a moment and ask um ask a question that i often ask of people who've spent a lot of time in the field which is um what are some of the most valuable lesson what are some of the most va valuable lessons you've learned from things that have gone wrong whether that's in field work, whether that's elsewhere. <laughs> I think, um, I think things always go wrong. I think when you're planning field work in from, from the UK or wherever you're based, always make it way simpler than seems necessary because when you're tired and wet and hungry, um, even, even sort of protocols or methods that seem really simple when you're at home become quite arduous. Um, I think you just have to to learn the hard way. You know, there's all kinds of things. There's there's planning well to have enough food. I think it's really important to try and eat, eat well on expeditions. Um, there's having the right equipment. There's having the right team, and there's keeping your team happy. Um, it's 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 really it's really tricky. But um, I think anyone that does field work will know that. If you're there for the right reasons and you're really motivated by what you're doing, um, then it's always worth it. Cool. Okay. Um, I think there's too many things that have gone wrong to try and pick down <laughs> any one single thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought that one was also a slightly unfair question. <laughs> um Okay, so turning from failures to um, to optimism, James. I know that optimism is something that's really important to you. I wanted to ask um, ask about uh, when it was that you realised that optimism was such a key ingredient of conservation. If if it, if it's possible to pin it down to a 
to a particular moment or experience. And then I also wanted to ask about the journey that you took across Southern and Eastern Africa, looking for stories of conservation success and what that taught you about the importance of optimism and success stories. Yeah, well, I think um, a bit like the fact that, that children and kids start out enjoying wildlife. I think surely everyone in conservation starts out a little bit optimistic and then people just try to sort of drum it out of you. I remember I, when I was at, at university, I got an internship at quite a sort of prestigious kind of lab working on um, some molecular ecology type things. And I, you know, often talked about how I, I really enjoyed field work and I wanted to get out in the field and, and work on conservation positively, do really optimistic things. And a really eminent professor that I really, really looked up to, really, really looked up to, said to me at the end, you know, why don't you just go and take six months off and get all this field work thing out of your system and then come back and do some proper science. And I think it's often the case when you get older, you have seen it all and you've seen a lot of things go wrong. And, you know, you, you lose that optimism and you then pass that on to, to, you know, earlier career scientists. So I think the more negativity and pessimism I've seen, the more it's just made me the opposite. And I, I know it's often unrealistic, you know, I mean, there's certainly species that are going to go extinct, but what's going to get you up each day and have you working in conservation? You know, is it going to be the pessimism of, you know, oh, have have we lost the Ethiopian wolf yet? You know, or is it going to be those absolutely remarkable stories of success, you know, against all the odds? And I think it's it's really important for you know, optimistic conservationists to talk, to talk about the things that have gone wrong. There have been introductions that have been total failures. There have been things we thought were a really good idea. You know, biofuels. Oh, what a brilliant idea. And then we realised there's all these downsides to them as well. Don't get me started on biofuels. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Indonesia, you know. Um, so I think it's I think it's fine to be, a, you know, an optimist and talk about all the things we've done wrong as long as we learn from them. Okay. Um... Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that's a theme that's come out really strongly in, in recent episodes of this podcast. Um, I'm thinking particularly back to my conversation with Sean Heinrichs, who's an underwater photographer and spent a lot of time documenting the illegal trade in marine wildlife and photographing the huge, um, the huge kind of fishing for sharks that takes place in order to make shark fin soup and some estimates well conservative estimates that we're taking a quarter of a million sharks out of the oceans mm. every day for that and the more pessimistic estimates i suppose that we're taking up to four hundred thousand sharks a day out of the oceans and in my conversation with sean he said you know he spent so many years working on working on documenting that that it took him personally to a to an emotionally negative place um and he had to kind of almost reinvent what he did as a as an underwater photographer um, and focus more on creating a positive emotional connection um, for himself with marine wildlife and also for the people he was trying to communicate to. And I don't think that means that you have to ignore the conservation problems that we're facing. 
but I do think it means that you can present those alongside stories of hope and success and solutions to the problems as well. And I think that's what you do really well in the TEDx talk that I watched where you focus on this theme of optimism. Um, I wanted to ask um, what... Uh, well, it's interesting. So this afternoon I was reading... Um, the Moth Snowstorm by Michael McCarthy, uh, former environmental journalist for The Independent, who, in that book, one of the things that he touches on is the attempt to reintroduce salmon to the Thames um, and the millions of pounds spent on uh, <laughs> spent on that and the, to date at least, the failure for salmon to return to breeding in the Thames, they they kind of went extinct from the Thames as a species due to all the pollution and all the um, all the locks that were put in that prevented them from moving up or downstream. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you about was whether or not you think we should put too much focus on conserving species in the UK and whether we see <laughs> see the UK as kind of too much of an island in conservation terms and failed to see the bigger picture. You've done some research and found my button to press. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say you wanted to touch on some... I think you said uh, the more controversial, the better. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so all conservation in the UK is pointless and it's a waste of money. <laughs> now that will have made some people cough on their cornflakes. Um, no, I, I don't believe that. C com coming back to what I said is you have to see both perspectives. And what I'd really like is in the UK, we have some amazing conservation organisations, better than probably any other country in the world, you know, the Wildlife Trusts, the RSPB, the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, um, Scottish Natural Heritage, Natural England, all these organisations working really hard. The problem, as I see it, is most people want most of their money spent where they can see the benefit. And I can understand that, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm old, I reserve the right to have that view. But in the grand scheme of things, we really don't have much biodiversity in the UK. One day, perhaps we could um, have a little more. But at this point in time, we're really focusing on sort of conservation triage. You know, if you, if you put right at the top of your list what matters in conservation, in my view, it's losing biodiversity. And that means losing species irreversibly. And we've already mentioned species like, you know, the Arabian leopard, the Ethiopian wolf, um, the storm stork, these species that really are on, on the brink of extinction. When you think about those species, should you spend money on salmon, which, although declining and very important, and I'd love to see them in the Thames, aren't in that same level of endangerment? we spend money on reintroducing red squirrels um my particular bugbear is when there are species in the uk that we spend a lot of money on because they're rare but they're only rare because we measure that within a certain country like england or scotland or wales but they're common as muck in europe or russia or somewhere like that to give you one example that the the plant i worked on for my phd is called dwarf birch and Rightly or wrongly, we got money to work on it because it's nationally scarce in the UK. And in fact, in England, there are just four plants left in three populations. That's why we were lucky enough to get money. Now, we made a good opportunity of it and looked at some really important science questions that 
that can be generalized to other species. But if you go to Scandinavia or Russia, you probably couldn't put a foot on the ground without treading on dwarf birch. And so in the big picture, it's a waste of money. Now, I personally would like to see organizations, and I'm going to pick one. I think they're fantastic, so I'm not getting at them, but I'm going to pick someone like the RSPB and say they should spend a far greater proportion of their money abroad. Because a pound in Indonesia, for example, goes an awful lot further than it does here. And if those organizations and the people that, that pay their subscriptions to them really care about biodiversity you know, and conservation, then they would demand that the money was spent in conservation hotspots or on edge species, ones that are globally endangered and, and, and genetically unique, um, rather than in the UK trying to have a few more goldfinches. Now, that being said, I can absolutely understand why these organizations work the way they do. But rather than pleasing their supporters by spending money where their supporters want, I think they should be putting a little bit more effort into trying to persuade their supporters that there are better places to spend their money. Um, I, yeah, I think, you know, I, I've said enough about it. I, I think conservation in the UK is wonderful, but at this point in time, there are places where we need to do far greater work. There's no, there's no point making environmental regulation even better and better and better in the UK when, you know, it's in such a state in other countries. No, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. Um, and I can't necessarily disagree with you that strongly. Um, you know, I think, um, I think there's a certain element of leadership that's important. So if you look to the Commonwealth Summit that's been taking place this week, for example, the UK, the UK having a good environmental record, and I'm sure you would agree with this, um, the UK having a decent environmental record lends it some credibility that allows it to play a leadership role, but, um, and, you know, take other countries with it. But you're absolutely right um, that there are some instances where there are things that we're trying to tackle, where it's a big issue in England, for example. But if you look at the bigger picture, actually, it's, um, <laughs> you know, you're creating that problem by looking at it through a certain lens rather than it actually necessarily being a problem. Um, yeah, absolutely. Measuring Measuring species rarity based on country borders is really not a very good way to do it. Um, because those borders often don't reflect, you know, ecology or biomes or anything like that. So, you know, thinking about it on a much larger scale and having more cooperation between countries is, is really important. I, I'll give you one example that really wound me up. I, I was very fortunate to be invited to give a talk up in Sheffield a couple of years ago. And the very nice talk organisers um, arranged the next day for some of the audience and some of the speakers um, to go out on the moors to work with the Wildlife Trust for the day. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of scrub clearance, which I thought was all right. And um, then they whipped out the saws to start cutting down the oak trees. And now I'm not a, I'm not a tree hugger at all. Um, a lot of conservation is about killing the wrong things. Um, in Ethiopia, for example, the best thing they could do to protect the Ethiopian wolf is to shoot thousands and thousands of semi-feral dogs that are spreading rabies. Mm -hmm. Lots of people have dogs, lots of people don't like the idea of shooting a dog, but that would be the best, most cost-effective thing to do. But in the UK, in a lot of places, even our conservation organisations cling on to these um, 
perhaps misguided perceptions of what the environment should look like. If we ask why we're cutting down and removing these trees, it's because for hundreds of years this has been grazing moorland for sheep and people like it the way it is. There's enormous obstacles to reforestation in Scotland because people are used to the way the mountains and the moors look, barren and bleak, when in fact, you know, a few hundred years ago, they would have been covered in trees. And every now and then you find a beautiful lone Scots pine that tells you that this whole landscape would have once been forested. And so often people just cling on to maintaining landscapes the way they know, when actually they would have once been very different. And, and, and what it is doesn't matter, but it's just why use thousands and thousands of volunteer hours keeping certain habitats in certain states rather than trying to work in conservation, you know, to spend the least money and the least effort to, you know, to get the maximum biodiversity in return. So, I mean, the UK is a difficult example because there, there really are no natural landscapes left. Um, but it, it does strike me that lots of people in conservation think, oh, that's about going out and clearing scrub and, and building uh, bee hotels and making piles of woods for hedgehogs. I mean, these are people that should be our number one kind of audience for big, global, important conservation issues. And at the moment, wildlife trusts and wildlife charities in the UK are funneling them into these really small, sort of globally much less meaningful activities. That's going to be controversial. <laughs> it is. Um, I want to ask a question about being controversial in a moment. But before I do... Um... I, I was really taken by the fact that you opened your TEDx talk by saying that the the photo of the Earth rise, the photo of the Earth taken from the moon, one of the most environmental, one of the most important environmental photos ever taken that you, you use a lot, was taken around half a century ago. And in that half a century, we've lost almost half of the wildlife on the planet. If you look at WWF's Living Planet Index, um, so it's it's been half a century. We've lost almost half of the wildlife. What do you think of the half Earth idea, putting aside half of the planet for nature? Brilliant. I think E.O. Wilson's a legend. Love it. Um, I Do you know what I think is cool about that? Um, firstly, I think it's a great idea, and I think we should do it. But the reason I think that's a really clever thing for him to say, and I... And I I bet he knows this, is that it it's unrealistic, but it but it moves the goalposts. So if the half earth idea, 50% starts getting lots of press and, and lots of people like Greenpeace and the RSPB and all these people say, oh, that's a great idea. You know, I mean, the other perspective, people that aren't conservationists might might start thinking, oh, that's that's a bit worrying. That would, you know, influence all their interests. And if someone comes along and says, hey, how about 30%? then all of a sudden, it's much easier to get agreement. And so aiming high, being really ambitious, overreaching, and then giving people room to compromise, I think is, is a really powerful thing in conservation. And I think we need to be more ambitious, you know, rather than saying, oh, please, can you conserve that little bit of rainforest or that little bit of ocean? You know, aim big and be willing to compromise with people. I couldn't agree with you more. I think. Um... I think that's the 
well, I know that there's been, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember properly now, in the past couple of weeks, I think it was the, the head of IPBES, the international something on biodiversity, um, or someone similar to that came out in su support of, or at least, you know, warmer to the half-earth idea. I think that bodies like that and bodies like the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is part of the UN, have a lot to learn from the UN climate change process, where big, ambitious, lofty goals have been set, and they might be unrealistic, but they give some something to everyone to fall in behind that can allow them to imagine what we might be able to achieve. And I think that imagination element is really important. And for me, I completely agree. That's what the half-earth idea does. Mm. It might be unrealistic, but it, at least, as you said so well, shifts the goalposts and allows us to imagine something very different from where we are now and maybe compromise on something that's between our previous ambitions and yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to, I've got a couple of areas that I wanted to, left that I wanted to talk to you about. And the first is about communications, um, which is something that you do a lot of. And I wanted to just tie it in to begin with to um, these controversial topics. So in one of your, one of your blogs on, uh, how to's one of your pieces of advice is that at times it's good to be good to be controversial not always but sometimes so we've discussed it a little bit in terms of UK conservation I know that genetically modified food is another area where you where you take that I was wondering why you give that advice to sometimes be controversial and put yourself out from the crowd a little bit well I think if we all just agree all the time um, then we probably won't make as much progress as we could I think the thing about being controversial, the most important thing is to see other people's perspectives. Now, a really nice one, which you mentioned, is, is GM crops. I can see why most sort of conservation-y, environmentally people would think, hey, that, that sounds nasty. I don't fancy that. Um, and I can, I can totally get their perspective. I think they're completely wrong. And I think if they took the time to really understand the issue uh, beyond what, what you might have read in, in rubbish newspapers, then I think they'd, they'd see that too. But, but coming back to, to poaching, coming back to you know, deforestation and mining, I think the most important thing is to be able to appreciate other people's opinions. So, so for example, trophy hunting. I... I'm not going to go to Africa and get a really big rifle and go and shoot a lion. That's not my idea of a good day out. But I can see why someone might. You know, if you like fast cars, guns, cool stuff, you've got a speedboat, then maybe you want to shoot a lion and have its head on your wall. Um, I personally don't think anyone can say what's morally right or wrong. There's enough people doing that. Um, I don't, I don't think a strong argument for not doing it is it's morally wrong. You might find it morally wrong. Um, someone else won't. And that's for society to make its mind up on. Um, so I can see why people would do trophy hunting. And in some situations, in some parks in Africa, um, trophy hunting provides an income that supports conservation. And that's really, really, really unpalatable for some people to face up to. And then you end up having a big argument about it. But that's, that's what the evidence suggests. 
that doesn't mean that I support trophy hunting or would do it myself. It just means I can see both sides of the opinion. And there's too many topics in conservation that I think hinder conservation's more uh, sort of wider uptake by society and policy. And they're things to do with sort of um, animal rights and tree hugging and strong opinions. Again, if people want to have these views, absolutely. But but proper science-based conservation too often gets muddled up with really strong morals and opinions. So I think opening up the debate, having conversations about these kind of things is really useful. And sometimes the only way you can get people to listen is to by being a little bit controversial. Yeah, I think I think what you're, you know, you write a lot of blogs on your website, for example. Um, and I think what you do really well is take a take a very reasoned approach that looks at the balance of the arguments and the evidence, but that, you know, when I say, when I say that you sometimes court controversy, that might sound like you're writing quite inflammatory things, but actually <laughs> the way that you're courting controversy is by looking at the, the true balance of the evidence and not necessarily taking a, a gut emotional reaction to certain topics. And I think that you do that really well. Um, and, and you know what, as, as soon as I've, you know, I, I never set out, for example, to be a proponent for GM crops. Um, I just happened to have a background in genetics and found some of the negative stuff I was seeing to be total rubbish. So I just sort of thought I'd I'd lay out a few of the facts. And as soon as you do that, you'd be amazed how many people will accuse you of being paid by someone like Monsanto. And I mean, you know, I wish I wish what I wrote was sort of exciting enough that some big company would approach me and pay me to write things but they simply don't but it's amazing that as soon as people hear things that they don't agree with they assume that you're being paid or you're biased in some way um so so don't believe everything you read <laughs> no um so besides um besides that i wondered if you could just run through quickly some of the other um tips that you have for people in conservation on how to how to communicate and how to communicate how to, well. how to communicate in conservation yeah well i mean that's that's big and tricky i, I think the most important thing is to um talk about what you do why you do it i just think the more mainstream and, and everyday conservation issues can become the more we can see these things in our everyday lives uh, the better i think one thing that's really tricky and by us talking and your listeners we're not going to solve it is the fact that half earth yeah i mean you mentioned that and i knew what you were talking about but i imagine 90 percent of people you spoke to in the street wouldn't and it's really really easy to have a bit of tunnel vision and, and become a bit sort of um trapped in in talking to other conservationists your conservation your, your conversations going further and further and further but forgetting that most people have no knowledge or interest in what you're talking about so i guess the most important thing we can do in conservation and i, I don't know the solution or how to do it or I, i'm not sure i do it very well but that's to try and open up the field to people that aren't conservationists and to try and get in information to them that's important and it's not just about cute and cuddly wildlife and um, sort of anthropomorphized stories of penguins and lions and things like that. Actually really Im important issues solved in not just an oversimplified way. 
so I think that's the important future for sort of communicating conservation, but I'm afraid I don't have any magic, <laughs> magic way on how to do it. <laughs> um, one of the ways in which, which you communicate is through doing talks. Um, and I'll, I'll definitely put a link in the notes with the episode to, to some of the talks that um, people can watch that have been recorded. Um, have you got a particular way that you prepare for doing talks? Is there a particular way that you, um, or criteria that you use to pick the stories that you tell as well? Um, no, there, there really isn't. I, I wish my talks were were better organized. Um, I I don't memorize. I mean, different ways work work for different people. I, you know, and, and <laughs> this will sound like that. I try to only talk about things I know about and that I'm passionate about. Um, and then I think stories come quite easily. And I think speaking gets easier the more you do. I, it's practice and practice and practice. And I mean, I started out giving talks in dozens and dozens and dozens of schools. And I mean, school students like, like say year, year eight and nine students, that's a really great sort of starting point because they won't give you an inch, but if you can get them on side and they think you're cool and they think you're funny, then you've absolutely won them. So I think school audiences can be the scariest and most fun. But how do I prepare? I think I, I think I talk to people in the pub a lot about conservation. And I think one of the most engaging ways to try and tell a story is to an audience, but in the same way as you tell your friend at the bar in a pub. Mm. And I personally am not a sort of particularly rehearsed person. You can see amazing, amazing rehearsed talks, um, but that's that's just not how I I deliver them. I, I just want to tell a few stories and, and pluck a few meanings out of them. Well, I, th the I think too much rehearsal kind of kills some of the, I don't know, some of the um, the excitement and the genuine emotion that comes with telling a story, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I only talk about conservation because I'm just, it's, it's my life. It's what I'm most interested in. I, I, I would be absolutely rubbish at getting up and giving a talk about music or fashion or any other topic. You know, it's, it's only conservation for me. Cool. Okay. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm getting married later this year and I have to give a speech. And um, I don't know what I'm going to talk about because I won't have a PowerPoint slide full of pictures of animals. I mean, what are you meant to do? <laughs> Well, congratulations, uh, frogs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'll be like, um, thanks, everyone. Um, thanks to the lovely bride. Now, who would like to hear about some weird stick insect? <laughs> Find a segue and then you're away. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So I've just got one, one last area that I wanted to ask about, which is about conservation careers, which we've touched on a little bit as well. But I was wondering if... Um, I was wondering what what some of the best advice for getting a career in conservation is that you've come across or that you've given, and what is some of the advice that people often give that you think should actually be ignored? I would say the really tricky topic in, in conservation careers at the moment is um, unpaid experience. And I see a lot of um, articles and things going around, which which I think have have a lot of merit, saying that that's not fair on on people from poorer backgrounds, or um, we should value what people do, so we should absolutely pay them, uh, and things like that. 
And again, I guess that's what I've said several times. I really see both perspectives. But I guess my view about conservation is a couple of things. Firstly, when you're early out, uh, when you know, when you're just starting out, try lots of different things. And that might be short volunteering opportunities, even just a day or a week or something like that with, with lots of different types of conservation, you know, science policy or fieldwork abroad or fieldwork in the UK to find out what you like. I think, I think that's really important and you keep the passion. You don't do anything too much. And then for the topic of, of doing things unpaid, when I think back to when I started out, I really didn't know very much and I wasn't very useful. And we all know conservation doesn't have much money. So you can see why a lot of organisations would jump at the chance to have willing volunteers willing to work for nothing. I think the important thing is you get useful experience in return. The, the comparison I'd give when a lot of people are very unhappy about some of these opportunities that, that, that don't pay anything, for example, is how much you pay these days to go to university. So nine grand a year in fees, plus all of your living expenses and other costs and things like that, you're going to pay, I don't know, 40, 50,000 pounds to do a three-year degree. Now, I'm not going to get into whether that's good value for money or, or, or whether fees should be low or these kind of things. But, but that's kind of your frame of reference, for example, to get a degree in biology or zoology or something like that. If you think about that, is it really... Um, in comparison, actually quite good value for money to pay £1,000 or a couple of £1,000 to get three months or six months experience in the field in the tropics. Actually, that starts to look really attractive. And I could perhaps see a day when, at least initially, instead of degrees, people went and got a few months field experience. And invariably, I know lots of people that, that paid um, to get their first one or two opportunities and then went back as base camp managers or leaders or science leaders and then the experience becomes much cheaper but it's it's starting out and getting something to your name often costs money but at least that money is going towards conservation at least if you're working with a, a reputable organization so i'd say my advice in conservation is to think carefully about those opportunities and getting some experience because i think experience is really really valuable and that's where, where you've got to start out yeah again again i really agree with you i think i think i've come across a range of different experiences in my early career which were a mix of volunteering and internships and there were some where like you i was really completely useless and knew very little and certainly wasn't worth paying and where the chance to do volunteering or an internship was a huge learning curve for me and I really benefited from it equally I see some opportunities out there and I see you know I've had friends who have done some things that were titled internships or volunteering placements where they were actually quite qualified and they were doing something that was very similar to what what people alongside them were doing but there was actually a paid role and I felt like it was a little bit um well, it was a bit unfair that that was titled an internship or a volunteering role because in essence it wasn't actually they were taking someone who was already quite well qualified had a couple of years of experience and putting them into an unpaid position but calling it branding it as volunteering or an internship yeah. um so you think it's a really right. mixed field yeah and 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 you can do 
as much homework as you possibly can to try and make the right decisions about mm -hmm. where to spend your time or maybe your money. But sometimes you're going to find opportunities are, are better than others. I'll give a plug actually to this really good uh, sort of initiative website. I think it's called The Conservation Guide and a guy called Justin Lennon, I think, founded it. And it's a website that sets out uh, to review various sort of conservation volunteering opportunities. So you can hear from people that have done them previously and see what they've got out of the opportunity. So I, I think it's still running. So I'll just give a plug to that. And that kind of initiative is a great way of trying to advise people on, on, on opportunities. Great. Okay. Right. Just, just as a couple of last wrap up questions that, um, that I often ask to people, James, what are some of the books that you most often recommend or give as a gift to other people, whether that's to do with conservation or something completely different? Oh, I have a, 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 a terrible memory. So what I often do is I often stare at my, stare at my bookshelf. I only read books once, but I hate throwing them away. I like, I like amassing books because it sort of jogs my memory for ideas mm. and you know sometimes I'll, I'll sort of thrust one up, upon someone um i really rate the selfish gene um that's a bit of an obscure not so conservationy book but it's richard, an, richard dawkins book. though right richard dawkins yeah i mean there's a guy that likes controversy and um, i'm just going to go and have a look at my book um <laughs> Oh, there's there's so many I really enjoyed the wild trees I can't remember who it's by but it's about climbing enormous redwoods in, in North America um Feral by Monbiot there's another really nice um controversial guy mm. um I like reading books about people that traveled through environments you know a long long time ago um Eric Newby's fantastic pretty much all of Eric Newby's books are fantastic and Dervla Murphy, I just read a book about her walking across northern Ethiopia. If anyone that did stick with me, um, that I, I really enjoyed quite some time ago, and uh, there's a, a a Greenpeace, I think it's a Greenpeace book, just called Greenpeace by a girl called Rex Wheeler or Whaler. And, you know, Greenpeace are a great example. Love some of the stuff they've done. Think some of the stuff they've done is absolutely ridiculous. Um, I can, you know, you've got to be able to hold both opinions about an organization at once. Mm. But reading about their early history and appreciating that almost certainly there are some species of whale that would be extinct if it wasn't for this mad group of people in a boat. And I think that's quite profound. The, the impact people can have. Oh, and I forgot my favourite book that you have to read. Um, Wild Hope by Andrew Blanford. Oh, yes, great book. And yeah. he's a, a really, really nice guy as well, which is just really nice when you kind of meet one of your heroes and they turn out to be just a really nice person. Um, I won't spoil it, but it's it's a book for conservation optimists. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I see a lot of um, uh, a lot of similarities between between Andrew and yourself. Um, you're both very. Well, I'm inspiring. sure he came up with all the ideas first. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, well, you're both very very inspiring, and um, you know, I was reminded a lot of the kind of theme that Andrew Andrew takes by by your talks as well, and by some of your thoughts. So, um, yeah, that's a great book, and I would recommend that one as well. Um, 
so pretty pretty much finally um if you could put anything on a billboard whether it's some words from yourself or a quote by someone else for millions of people to potentially be able to read and see what would it be mm. i think it would be something along the lines of i've seen the quote attributed to a few people but i think it's most eloquently put by david attenborough who's obviously legend mm -hmm. um and that's oh, and let me get the wording right um let me get the wording right before i make a pig's ear of it <laughs> uh that's the most important thing um there's it gone you see, it's never as glamorous as people actually just spouting off a quote off the top of their head. If you want to make, if you want to make a good job of it, you need to, to, to read it properly. Yeah. Um, I think I think I know the one that you're going to go. For. Yeah, you know what I'm going to say. No one will protect what they don't care about, and no one will care about what they've never experienced. Now, imagine if you could put that on a billboard that everyone commuting, uh, had to see every day for a year. I think that'd be super cool. Yeah. I agree. I think, yeah, um, it's nice to have kind of quotes around the place or to come back to, to powerful quotes. And I think it's a thing that can, you know, influence how you how you approach every day. Cool. James, are you there? Yeah, sorry. My, I just got a wheel of death on my computer, but it's fine. I'm here. Everything's good. <laughs> okay, good. Um, well, uh, I think that's basically it. Is there anything else that we didn't um, talk about or that I didn't ask about that you wanted to bring up or to cover? No, I think that's more than enough for me. If people have listened to this whole thing, then I think they've, you know, good on them. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at Wild Voices Proj, or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time. <laughs>